This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Ladies and gentlemen, I am not in a very good mood this morning. Welcome to the program. We'll get into that in a little bit. It has nothing to do with the NFL Sunday that we uh, completed yesterday. My team did win. The Dallas Cowboys have been a lifelong Cowboy fan. They made it interesting, but won nonetheless. Let me start with an introduction. I'm your host for today, Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark. You may know me. You may not know me. It's irrelevant at this point. I'm the host today. Let me take care of a couple of housekeeping um, measures first. This is the Glenn Beck program. Glenn Beck is a brand. Glenn Beck has built this brand. He's worked hard at it. He's good at what he does. Every once in a while, he allows somebody to pilot the ship. I've done it before for him. It's an honor to, to, uh, to be with you this morning and to... Be a part of this brand, the Glenn Beck program. And I'm here to protect the brand. But at the same time, as always, uh, the Blaze has, has given me the freedom to express my views. And they may differ from uh, some of the things that Glenn says, not many. And they may differ from some of the things that uh, you believe and, and, and espouse, so on and so forth. And that's okay. I don't mind discourse. But I'm here to protect the brand. I know that's very important, not only to uh, to me, but it's important to Glenn as well. But there may be some time, some rocky moments. But I always remind uh, the people tuning in, don't take it out on Glenn, please. Don't take it out on the blaze. Take it out on me. I have big shoulders. I get blamed for a lot of stuff. I get piled on a lot. Uh, that's kind of the environment I'm in. I don't whine about it. So if I say something that rubs you the wrong way or whatever, you feel like you want to call in and, and talk about it, the number is 888-727-BECK. That's 888-727-2325. What's coming up on the program today? Well, first we're going to start off with an election wrap-up. I know the election's been over for since November 8th, November 9th. and But there's a lot going on still. Today's a big day, the Electoral College meets. That's when we truly picked the President of the United States by the Constitution, by the law, and that will happen uh, sometime today. All 50 states will gather their electors, and 
they'll make that determination. If we go by the states that were won on November 8th, Donald Trump should be elected, duly elected, the president of the United States by the Electoral College. But, you know, we're in some weird times and some goofy things have happened and some goofy things will continue to happen. People continue to try to work the electors of the Electoral College. I'm going to talk about that in one of the uh, segments down the road. We're also going to talk about immigration. That is going to be a big issue for this upcoming Congress, the new Congress that will be seated on January 20th as well. And the first 100 days are always talked about, and president, a, new, a new administration comes in, even if the president's reelected and he starts another term. The first 100 days are important. They set the tone. The first 100 days is an, an opportunity, if you will, for the incoming president to set the stage, set the vision for the country, get some things going. It's very important to get off to a fast start. That's why we have this concept called the first 100 days. And I'll tell you what, it can make or break an administration. If you get bogged down, uh, you will be that way and you'll struggle. So you've got to get out of the gate fast. Donald Trump plans to do just that as he's putting his cabinet together. But immigration is one of those things that this new Congress is going to have to take up. It was one of the uh, major platforms of the uh, Trump campaign, immigration reform, closing the border, building the wall, so on and so forth. Uh, and there's some other things that he wants to address in that first 100 days as well, the repeal and, and replacement of Obamacare. So we'll talk about uh, the immigration aspect of it because it's going to be big. And there's many facets to that, as you may know. So I want to hear from you on that. Again, that number is 888-727-BECK, 888-727-2325. Also in this first hour, we're going to talk about the opioid epidemic sweeping America. Folks, I want to tell you that this thing is touching everybody. It is a crisis. It's not getting all the attention. It's getting some media attention, but it's not getting all the attention that I think it should be because we're talking about a generation now of people, specifically young people, who uh, have been gripped by this uh, uh, opioid and heroin epidemic. And we'll talk about that. Also, I'll be joined by Heather McDonald, author of The War on Cops. Heather is a researcher, the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. She's a uh, contributing editor to the City Journal magazine. She's written several books, her latest one being The War on Cops. And we're going to talk about an article that was published in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, how Donald Trump can change the rhetoric uh, in the war on cops. We'll be joined by her, and we'll have much, much more. But here's where I want to start. This thing that I opened up this program with saying that I was not in a real good mood this morning. I learned over the weekend that President Obama, in one final move, kicking law enforcement in the teeth, by selecting an individual, Abu Jamal. He's a cop killer. Actually, he didn't appoint Abu Jamal, uh, but Abu Jamal's a, a, a cop killer. In 1981, he killed Danny Faulkner, a Philadelphia a police officer who was 25 years old. Abu, Abu Jamal was a uh, Black Panther, and what happened was uh, uh, the officer Faulkner made a traffic stop. A scuffle ensued. Abu Jamal's brother was scuffling with the law enforcement officer. Abu Jamal saw it. He came over. He shot and killed Officer Faulkner. 
Officer Falkland was found faced up, bullets in his back. Uh, he shot him before he hit the ground, then stood over him, straddled him, and shot him in the forehead. Uh, very famous case. Abu Jamal was convicted and sentenced to death. And then in, in a uh, uh, turn of events, he was granted a new trial because there was an error in the uh, jury instructions on a death penalty. And so they settled the case, giving him life in prison without parole. Anyway, there was an attorney, Debo Adegbele. Debo Adegbele was a, uh, an attorney for the NAACP, the Legal Defense Fund. He was not representing Abu Jamal. Abu Jamal had competent counsel, but he entered a brief into the case as a friend of the court. I'm talking about Debo Adegbele. Debo Adegbele is a straight-up cop hater and a black racialist. Several times, President Obama tried to jam Debo Adegbele down our throats, first by nominating him to be a federal judge and then tried to nominate him. And both of these required U.S. Senate confirmation. Uh, He tried to nominate him to head the Civil Rights Division of the United States Department of Justice. Now, keep in mind, Debo Adegbele is a straight-up cop hater. He's not a good fit to lead the Civil Rights Division of the United States Department of Justice. He's also not a good fit to be a federal judge. Because, like I said, he's a black racialist. He sees everything through the lens of race, thinks all whites are racist. The Senate uh, struck down his, his, his judgeship, and then he withdrew, uh, Degbele withdrew his name from uh, consideration for the U.S. DOJ Civil Rights Division post because he wasn't going to be confirmed. Well, in one last move, President Obama put this individual, I've got to be careful here, but I said I'm not in a good mood today, but he put him on the USDOJ Civil Rights Division in an appointment that's going to last six years. A kick in the teeth to every law enforcement officer in the country. This is who Barack Obama is. Barack Obama is also a straight-up cop hater. I've said that before. I've said that on TV, nationally, and people would ask, do you really believe that President Obama is a cop hater? And I'd look him right back in the eye and go, yes, I do, and I can prove it. And I'd go on to state these instances. This is just one. But you remember the Cambridge, Massachusetts case uh, where a friend of Obama's was uh, arrested by Cambridge police and... Obama said the police officers acted stupidly in arresting his friend. No, they didn't. They were doing their job. That started it. Obama was also very intricate in starting the war on cops. So we'll see how this goes. I think uh, incoming U.S. Attorney Jeff Sessions would do well to find a spot if they can't stop this this move. Find a spot in some corner office and have Debo Adegbele counting paper clips. That's kind of what needs to happen. We're going to take a break on the other side. We're going to come back, and we're going to talk some post-election wrap-up. I'm Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark. This is the Glenn Beck Radio Program. The Glenn Beck Program. The fusion of entertainment and enlightenment. The Glenn Beck Program. Mercury.
Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Program. 888-727-BECK. Welcome back to the program. I'm your host for today, Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark. This is the Glenn Beck Program. I'll be with you tomorrow, too. I don't know if that's going to be good or bad news for you who've joined us today. I think it's going to be good news, but I'll let you know that as well. Two days so I can get some stuff going here. Uh, let me do a little self-promoting before I get into the first topic, which is going to be the uh, some post-election results. You follow me on Twitter, at Sheriff Clark, and that's C-L-A-R-K-E. Don't forget the E, otherwise you might get some other Twitter handle, and you look and you say, what the heck is this? Uh, that's the good stuff, folks. That's the stuff the the national, uh, the liberal media pays attention to, and they look every time I put out a tweet to try to contort it into something that I did not say. Uh, but that's okay. But it's at Sheriff Clark, C-L-A-R-K-E. Also, I have a blog. You can follow me on my blog, and it's the People's Sheriff at Pathios.com. Pathios is P A T H E O S. I also have a book coming out. My first book is going to be coming out in March of 2017, but you can pre order it now at Amazon or you can go to Barnes and Noble and uh, get your pre order in. What's this book about? It's called Cop Under Fire. As you may know, we've become an increasingly divided and polarized nation in recent years. You have growing racial tension. You have animosity toward law enforcement professionals, government corruption, and disregard for our constitutional process. And there's no easy answers to these. Uh, This book is not just going to be a recitation of of things that are uh, problematic in America. I don't say wrong in America, but we have some problems, we have some issues, but it's not just going to be the same, you know, here are the issues facing America. But what I try to do is take those things that deeply affect us, and I point out in this book, Cop Under Fire, how can we, we can rise above this, these current troubles and these issues, and we can truly become that great nation in pursuit of liberty and justice for all. So again, that's Cop Under Fire at Amazon. And Barnes & Noble, you can pre-order that. If you have a law enforcement friend, if you have a law enforcement officer retired or current in your family, uh, it's going to be a must-read. If you, um, Even citizens in general, uh, it's going to be a fascinating book, not just because I wrote it, but it comes from the heart. And anybody that has listened to me over the last, I don't know, three, four, five years, you know I speak from the heart. I don't pull any punches. I don't hold anything back. I just tell you the way I see it. Am I right on everything? Of course not. Do I have all the answers? <laughs> not hardly. However, I put it to you straight. Straight talk is what you're going to get from me, unvarnished. Then I offer some things uh, that are food for thought for a way forward. Now let's get into this post-election, presidential election, 2016. Happened on November 8th. 
A lot has been said about it. Much has been talked about, uh, but you haven't heard my perspective on this thing. Uh, we may differ a little bit on some of the things here, but like I said, I don't shy away from that. I believe discourse, differing points of view, different schools of thought. I believe that stuff is healthy in a democracy. We should be able to politely disagree, some spirited discourse back and forth, nothing wrong with that. I love that. Like I said, I think it's healthy in a democracy. And it shouldn't denigrate into the name-calling and the some of the other things that it does when people differ with somebody else's views. Let's just have an educated conversation and skip all the other stuff. You know, I mean, if you say something... Uh, For instance, if somebody has different views on gay marriage, all of a sudden you're a uh, homophobe. You know, if you uh, believe that the United States is a Judeo-Christian nation, not to the exclusion of any other religion, I did not say that. But if you believe that uh, the principles that this country are founded on were Judeo-Christian, if you believe that, then you're an Islamophobe, right? That's what it denigrates into. And you can go on and on and on. You're a racist if you um, believe in the Constitution, the rule of law, the founding fathers, the history of this nation. You're a racist. And that's what everything seems to end up, where everything seems to end up. And it's very unfortunate because, like I said, with critical thought, you know, we truly can move this nation forward and become this this shining city on the hill uh, that I believe we already are. But um, um, we've gotten away from some concepts that have grounded this nation and, and led it to be that shining city of the, on a hill. But if we just allow people to shut down views that we don't agree with, it's not going to be uh, very good. But, you know, in the post-election, I look back, and I supported Donald Trump for president of the United States. I supported him after the primary. I stayed out of uh, endorsing anybody in the primary, Republican primary I'm talking about. First of all, I'm not a member of the Republican Party. I'm not a member of the Democrat Party. I run as a Democrat. Uh, sheriff in Milwaukee County. I'm elected as a Democrat, but I don't belong to a political party. I don't believe in belonging to a political party. If you do, that's your business. Don't care what your politics are. It's neither here nor there. But that's why I did not endorse in the Republican primary. I wanted the people, we the people, the, the members of that party to select a candidate. So I stayed out of the way. I had numerous candidates ask me to endorse them in the primary. I stayed out of it. I I made it clear. I'm keeping my powder dry, but I made this clear to whoever comes out of this process as the nominee for the Republican Party, I will back, and I will back 100%. Folks, I'm a man of my word. And when I say something, you can take it to the bank. So uh, Donald Trump obviously was the victor, and he came back around to me and asked for his support. And I said to him, Mr. Pre- I wasn't president at the time, I said, Mr. Trump, I don't know what I could do for you, but I made it clear I'd back whoever won. You are the winner. I will do everything I can and will fight as hard as I can to help you become the 45th president of the United States. That's how I arrived at my decision. And I just believed that after that process, the convention, which I spoke at, that was an honor, I thought it was time for conservatives, Republicans, libertarians, some independents to put all that stuff aside in the name of the country. That's what I did. And that's why I supported Donald Trump. I offered no apology. I'm just trying to tell you where I came from in that um, in that decision. But you look at what's happening now with this um, uh, this whole process. The election's over. The election is over. We have a president-elect. His name is Donald Trump. He's putting his government together. 
He's putting his cabinet together. And he needs our support, folks, for the country. All right. The left, even today with the Electoral College, they don't want to believe that the the um, election's over, but it is. We need to take a break. On the other side, we'll continue this. This is Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark in for Glenn Beck. This is the Glenn Beck Program. program. I'm your host today, Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark. Thanks for joining us. You know, coming out of that election November 8th, there were many important aspects of why I got behind Donald Trump to become the next, the 45th president of the United States. But I think at the top of the list for me was we saved the Supreme Court. I believe that we'll get a strict constructionist uh, appointed by Donald Trump to fill the seat of the late, great Antonin Scalia, that was huge. If you believe in your gun rights, if you believe in the Constitution, if you believe in the rule of law, we had to save the Supreme Court. That thing would have tilted hard left, and we would have been talking about a hard left United States Supreme Court for the next 30 to 40 years. If you look at the age of the justices right now, the ones that Obama put on, relatively young for, for Supreme Court justices, they're going to be around a long, long Time. Some of the ones who are uh, getting to that point where they're starting to look, you know, and, and wondering how long they're going to stick around, Ginsburg, Kennedy, even uh, Justice Thomas, a young man by, by, by age standards. But, you know, there comes a point in time where people sometimes just say, hey, I want to do something else. I've served. It's time for me to move on. Would you have wanted Mrs. Bill Clinton to appoint the next three to four Supreme Court justices. I mean, think about some of this stuff, which is why I told people during the process, you know, the people, conservatives, slash Republicans, slash some libertarians, and slash some independents, I reminded them, put all that other stuff aside, think about your country and what's at stake here, and many of you did. But, you know, in, in, in looking at what's happening now, post-election, as Donald Trump goes about putting his government together, he's made several cabinet appointments, I think very fine selections. But look at some of the stuff coming out of the left, the mouth of the left on some of his cabinet selections. Now you had Dr. Ben Carson, who's been nominated for Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Here's what Nancy Pelosi said. The ink wasn't even dry on the memo, folks, the news release. And here's what she had to say. Quote, Dr. Ben Carson is a disconcerting and disturbingly unqualified choice to lead a department as complex and consequential as housing and urban development. 
Continued quote, our country deserves a HUD secretary with the relevant experience to protect the rights of homeowners and renters, particularly in low low income and minority communities, and to ensure that everyone in our country can have access to safe and affordable housing without facing discrimination or homelessness. There is no evidence, she said, that Dr. Carson brings the necessary credentials to hold a position with such immense responsibility and impact on families and communities across America. Now, let me pause there for a moment. Take that quote that I just read from Nancy Pelosi. Take Dr. Ben Carson out of that quote and insert Barack Obama in 2008. You could have said the same thing after the election of Barack Obama in 2008. Disturbingly unqualified, disconcerting, doesn't have the experience, no evidence that he brings the necessary credentials to hold a position with such immense responsibility and impact on families and communities across America. That was Barack Obama in 2008. Folks, he was a freshman senator. He was a couple years removed from being a state senator in the state of Illinois. He was in a state legislature, and now he assumes the presidency because he won the election. You may not have voted for him, but you know what? He won the election. But had you said this about Barack Obama in 2008, you would have been labeled a racist. And you know what? The entire liberal mainstream media would have come down on you like a ton of bricks. But no such accusation toward Nancy Pelosi from the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, CNN, MSNBC. No such claim that Nancy Pelosi is a racist for thinking that a neurosurgeon. Think about this, ladies and gentlemen. A guy who understands the working, the intricate working of the human brain can't figure government out? She's not qualified, Nancy Pelosi, to even make this statement or to judge the qualifications of Dr. Ben Carson. And then you have this guy from California, Democrat congressman, who called on Ben Carson to withdraw his nomination as Secretary of Housing and Urban Development because of his utter lack of qualification for the job. Some two-bit congressman from California is going to stand in judgment of a neurosurgeon. You know the history of Ben Carson. Grew up in Detroit, in the ghetto of Detroit. Single mom who dropped out of third grade. Worked any job she could to raise her two sons as a single parent, and successfully she did this. And they're saying Ben Carson doesn't understand urban issues? This is fascinating. So we have that going on. We had the riots that ensued post-November 8th, George Soros funded, or at least reported, reportedly. We spent millions on recounts. One of those recounts was in the state of Wisconsin. $3.5 million Jill Stein paid 
for recounts in the state of Wisconsin. That works out, if you do the math, to about $21,000 a vote to recount. And guess what? Donald Trump ended up with more votes than he had on election night. So this is the stuff going on. And now the Russians did it. It's the Russians' fault. Now they've glommed onto this. And because there's nothing else for them to look at, the media, and it's all the media, are trying to stretch and make something fake news, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not here to suggest that the Russians don't try to hack into cyber systems in the United States. The United States does the same thing. Remember the Stuxnet Stuxnet virus? Had to do with Iran's nuclear capability. The United States did that. That's the kind of stuff that goes on. But I think it's an insult to the American people. A total insult. That we the people didn't go out and vote for Donald Trump or that we were influenced by Russian hacking. I don't know if if, if the Russians hacked into the... Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, you're hearing all stuff all across the board, right? They did, they didn't. Who knows? Donald Trump was duly elected by the people of this country. And it is time to put this nonsense aside. Because we have this thing that's very near and dear to this represented democracy. And it's called the peaceful transition of government, of administration. Peaceful. We did it in 08. People that didn't vote for Barack Obama did not take to the streets. They did not blame the Russians. They did not harass electors to the Electoral College. We sucked it up. We said, hey, I got elected. Time to move forward. Doesn't mean you can't oppose his policies and whatnot for the next four years. Doesn't mean you can't oppose or the left can't oppose and fight Donald Trump on trying to get his Make America Great agenda happen. You can do that. That's what's great about this country. But to try to delegitimize it before he even takes office? Folks, this is fascinating. I'm Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark. This is the Glenn Beck program. We have to take a break. Again, the number is 888-727-2325. It's 888-727-BECK. We'll be right back. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. the Glenn Beck program. I'm your host today, Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark. Again, the call-in number, 888-727-2325. It's 888-727-BECK. Talking about some post-election news, some wrap-up in the uh, November 8th election. Today is a big day. Constitutionally, the Electoral College meets in all 50 states. Electors will gather to 
cast their electoral votes. Some states, it's by law that if the a particular individual won the state, they have to vote that way. Some states, it's a little more loose. I know in Colorado, the Democrats have gone to their state court to try to get them to overturn their law. This is how the left operates. See, defeat is never final. They're still fighting the election. The Democrats. So they're trying to get a court to overturn their law that says the Colorado electors have to vote for uh, particular individuals. This is amazing. You know, you, you heard me talk about the criticism of Donald Trump's cabinet, of which I have none, by the way, zero. But here's another one. It's from the Mercury News. Trump's White House. How white will it be? So far, all five of Trump's first picks for key White House advisor and cabinet posts have been white men, several of whom have been accused of being racist or anti-Muslim. First of all, if you're on the right, (laughs) by their standards, we're all anti-Muslim and we're all racist, including me. I mean, that's that's how they look at us. That's how they view us. So that means nothing to me. But check out these first couple of paragraphs here. From the moment Donald Trump first uttered his slogan about making America great again, his critics countered that what he really wanted was to return to an era when white men ran the ship of state. It goes on to say that so far, the president-elect is doing little to dispel their fears. Trump's first five picks for key posts were all white males, several of whom are causing chills to run down the spines of civil libertarians. Let me stop there for a minute. Has anybody asked themselves what the people on the left, liberals, Democrats, have against white people? I know I don't. I don't have anything against white people. You notice when I talked about Ben Carson, I didn't call him a black neurosurgeon. I called him a neurosurgeon. I don't view everything through the prism of race. Every once in a while, from time to time, you'll hear me refer to myself as a black conservative. But that's not to point out my race. It's to point out how and why the left reviles me. Because it's bad enough, if you're on the left, it's bad enough to be a conservative. But if you're a black conservative, you are a conservative of the worst type, the worst kind. I remember when Jeff Sessions was announced to be the nominee for the next attorney general. Again, before the ink was dry on the Trump transition news release, Senator Elizabeth Warren demanded that Trump withdraw the nomination. I mean, it was it was within the first five minutes of the announcement. This is what we're going to be up against for four years. Because remember, with the Democrats, defeat's never final. The fight is never over. Never over. That's why I've likened them to being a colony of carpenter ants. Put carpenter ants in your favorite search engine and look at some of the, 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 the stuff. On, they're, amazing. They're, they're, they're amazing species. They constantly just build the nest. That's all they do continually. You can't get rid of them. You can call them an exterminator. You may temporarily slow them down. The ones that survive move on and build a new nest. 
That's how the Democrats operate. It's never over. So the Electoral College meets today. You have these people in the Electoral College being harassed. Folks, that is a violation of federal law. And it's 18 U.S.C.S. 594. It says whoever intimidates, threatens, coerces, or attempts to intimidate, threaten, or coerce, coerce any person who is voting for president, vice president, or presidential elector shall be fined or imprisoned for one year or both. Where is the DOJ investigation? Because if this happened in 2008, there would be an investigation started. Where's the FBI? The campaign's over. You cannot coerce. You cannot threaten. You cannot intimidate presidential electors. But it's going on. Obama hasn't said anything about it. Loretta Lynch hasn't said anything about it. And Comey hasn't said anything about it. This is fascinating. Just, you know, rewind back to 2008. If the same thing were happening, you know there'd be screams by the left for investigations and prosecutions and and imprisonment. I'm Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark in for Glenn Beck. This is the Glenn Beck program. Coming up on the other side, we're going to talk to Heather McDonald. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. I'm your host today, Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Our next segment, we're going to be talking to Heather McDonald. There is no better friend outside of law enforcement than Heather McDonald. I've said that before, and I truly mean it. Joined on the line by Heather McDonald. Heather, how are you? Great, Sheriff Clark. It's always such an honor to speak with you. Likewise, and I gave you a introduction in the opening uh, so they kind of know your background your latest book the war on cops that is a must read for all law enforcement officers people outside of law enforcement who want the research who want the data and the statistics to fight back in this war on police now you authored an article that appeared in the wall street journal over the weekend and you indicate that uh, trump can end the war on cops and in it you state that donald trump's promise to restore law and order to america's cities was one of the most powerful themes of his presidential campaign His capacity to deliver will depend on changing destructive presidential rhetoric about law enforcement and replacing the federal policies that flowed from that rhetoric. How does President-elect Donald Trump go about doing that? 
Well, I would love to hear him or, or his uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions give a speech that just laying out the facts for the American public uh, that policing today is data-driven. There's no government agency more committed to the proposition that black lives matter than the police and that there is simply no evidence that policing is shot through with uh, racial bias or that we're living through an epidemic of racially biased shootings of police officers. And, and he should promise to, you know, investigate misconduct when it legitimately, when there's legitimate evidence that it's occurred. And, of course, officers have to be held to the highest standards of courtesy, respect, and lawful behavior. But the public has to stop fighting officers. They have to stop resisting arrest. They have to cooperate with criminal investigations. As you know, Sheriff Clark, a detective will tell you he could solve every single murder in the inner city if he got the witnesses to cooperate. And instead, because of the no-snitching ethic, uh, nobody's talking. And and that's the that's the reality that cops are facing today. There's no doubt about it. It's part of the cultural dysfunction that I've talked about that exists. And it's not all black people. I'm not even intimating that. You aren't either. But there is some cultural dysfunction that goes on, like you mentioned, the no snitching, a lack of respect for authority, lack of respect for the police. Now, you mentioned Jeff Sessions. He's the president-elect Donald Trump's nominee to be the next attorney general uh, of the United States. And I indicated when uh, Donald Trump ran for president, I said one of the things that he can do, because as you know and you point out, you know, local policing is a local issue, but the feds can play a role in helping us. But you mentioned Jeff Sessions, and I said one of the things the president-elect can do is appoint an attorney general who understands policing, who is a supporter of the police, a supporter, strict supporter of the rule of law. How do you think Jeff Sessions can help and will help? is a remarkable appointment. It could not have been better. Amen. And and as you know, uh, Sheriff Clark, you have been one of the most fearless exponents of the immigration rule of law. And for people who believe that immigration should be a function of the American people deciding what their laws should be, not a function of people outside the country deciding whether they want to enter illegally, Sessions uh, could not be a better pick because he has been the voice within the Senate for uh, immigration enforcement and the rule of law. But on the policing matter, he's also stood up against the phony narrative that mass, so-called mass incarceration is another uh, idea of where racism is is dominant and one of the myths he's pushed back against this myth that the reason that there is a disproportionate representation of blacks in prison is because of criminal justice racism the reality is sadly criminologists have tried decades to find this evidence of criminal justice system racism they always come up short and against their most fervent desires are forced to conclude that it's crime that is resulting in disproportionate representation of blacks in prison. And Sessions will, I think, 
try to put a break on this effort to de-incarcerate and decriminalize that is contributing to the crime increase that this country has experienced over the last two years. Now, one of the things that you point out, you've done extensive research on, is this theory that you offer about the Ferguson effect, where police have cut way back on pedestrian stops, public order uh, enforcement, I call it quality of life enforcement, uh, assertive policing, discretionary policing, that they've cut back in minority neighborhoods because of this war on cops, and now this fear to to actually go out and, like I said, assertively police for fear of being uh, caught up in some uh, United States Department of Justice uh, uh, dragnet, if you will, and called racist. What effect has the Ferguson effect had on a quality of life for black people living in these high-crime neighborhoods? It means that their voices are being ignored. You know, I don't blame the cops for backing off, because if they're told by the most powerful segment of society, which is the media, the political class, the academics, that they're racist for enforcing quality of life laws, uh, and and when they encounter uh, this virulent hatred in the streets now, they're human and they're going to back off. But there's another segment in the black community that is not represented on CNN or MSNBC. And these are the people that I hear every time I go to a police community meeting in places like Harlem or central Brooklyn. These are the good law-abiding bourgeois citizens who beg the police to restore order, to clear the corners of the youth who are hanging out, fighting, smoking weed, to get the drug dealers off the streets, to get rid of the illegal vendors, to get the kids out of their lobby. And the irony that the cops face in today's racially charged world is that they cannot respond to those heartfelt requests for public order without generating the racially disproportionate stop and arrest data that the Justice Department under a President Obama or an ACLU can use against them in the next racial profiling lawsuit. You know, one of the things that I admire about you, Heather, is unlike many academics who sit up there and offer these theories and they, they write these reports from these ivory towers, they're not at street level. They don't talk to street cops on the front lines. They don't talk to um, uh, everyday citizens that are to have to live with this crime and violence. And you have done that. You go down to street level. And most of these people be too afraid to do that sort of thing. Uh, I want to thank you for the work that you continue to do on behalf of not just the police, but on behalf of every law-abiding citizen in America who appreciates the rule of law and what it does to maintain some standard uh, that we all want to live under uh, inside these neighborhoods. Again, Heather McDonald's book, The War on Cops, a must-read. And Heather, thanks for joining me, and Merry Christmas. Well, Sheriff, thank you so much. And I'd like to tell your listeners to pre-order your book, Cop Under Fire. I'm sure it's available on Amazon. And if not, uh, they should just sign up as quickly as possible because it's a fantastic, uh, elevating peon to American greatness. Well, Heather, thanks for that endorsement. Uh, Coming up in the next segment, we're going to talk immigration. And that is going to be, like I said, in the first hundred days, one of the things that this Congress, this new Congress, is going to have to deal with, uh, keeping in mind that the Constitution says the Congress 
has the enforcement and, and the um, uh, is empowered to create uh, immigration laws. The Congress, not the President of the United States. President of the United States, or President-elect, I should say, Donald Trump has made it very clear uh, that he wants something done uh, to finally fix this issue of immigration. But uh, we'll talk about that again. The number is 888-727-2325. It's 888-727-BECK. You'll want to get in on that conversation. I am Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark. In for Glenn Beck. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Glenn Beck Program. Triple eight seven two seven back. Mercury. I'm your host for today, Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark. This is the Glenn Beck Radio Program. Thanks for joining us. Again, you can follow me during the week on Twitter, at Sheriff Clark, and that's C-L-A-R-K-E. Don't forget the E. And also at the People's Sheriff at Pathios.com. That's my blog. And also, don't forget, Cop Under Fire, my book coming out in March of 2017. You can pre-order that now on Amazon and I've been told you can order that at Barnes & Noble as well. Call in number 888-727-BECK, 888-727-2325. We're going to talk about immigration. This is going to be one of the priorities of the Trump administration. He campaigned on it on his thank you tour, victory tour across the United States and some of the, the uh, states that he won that he was not expected to win. He talked about it again. He's going to build a wall, folks. We can talk some other day about who's going to pay for it and all that other stuff, that, that, that you know, the trimming on it. He's going to build a wall. It has to happen because any talk of immigration reform, any talk of immigration reform has to start with sealing the border. It has to. If you don't seal our poorest southern border, mainly the southern one, it's not going to matter because you can deport all the people you want, even the criminal illegal aliens, of which there are about 820,000 estimated. You can deport them all you want. They're coming right back. Some other aspects of immigration. See, the problem, ladies and gentlemen, is we don't enforce the laws in the book. When we talk comprehensive, I don't know what that means anyway, comprehensive immigration reform. But when we talk about immigration reform, we have immigration laws on the books that we will not enforce. So part of it is getting back to enforcing the laws as they are written. And if Congress, under their constitutional authority, thinks that we need to reform some of those, well, God bless them. Well, they can make all the laws they want. If the laws are not enforced by the United States Department of Justice, by the White House, you know how President Obama has obliterated our immigration laws, then it's not going to matter what kind of new immigration reform that they come up with. So we have to lock down 
the border. This is a national security issue. If you're going to be a sovereign nation, which the United States is, then you have to have borders and you have to enforce those borders. But there's no, there's been no will. And you know what? This, this stuff transcends different administrations. Republican presidents haven't had the will. Democrat presidents haven't had the will. Democrat-controlled Congresses haven't had the will. Republican-controlled Congresses haven't had the will. They've always turned it into a political issue. How can they use this for political leverage? How can we turn this into votes? Instead of just enforcing the law. So there's this estimate that we have anywhere between, I don't know, 11, 13, 14, 15, 17 million people living illegally in the United States. What do we do with those? I don't have the answer for that. But I know this much. As I indicated, there are about 820,000 criminal illegals who have not been deported. We need to start there because that can happen immediately. What Congress wants to do with the anywhere from 11 to 17 million Illegal aliens in the United States, I'm going to leave to Congress. The political issue. But let's get rid of the criminals. And here's another thing, folks. I'm tired of the games being played with criminal illegal aliens where courts and others are saying, well, you know, it has to be for a serious felony. And then other courts have thrown attempts to deport out because, well, that's not really a serious felony, like burglary. Yes, it is. It's a very serious spelling because if you break into my house and I'm home, you're an intruder, and I feel fear for my life or that of my family. I'm, I'm going to shoot. I'm going to shoot you. That's how serious this is. So what what they're basically saying is, well, you can't use a deadly force, sheriff, if someone breaks into your home because that's not a serious felony. Yes, it is. I'm going to make sure it's clear to the perpetrator. It is very serious. I don't think it's unreasonable. I do not think it's unreasonable if you are in somebody else's country that you should adhere to all of their laws. You are a guest. And if you're in the country illegally, somebody's country, you're a trespasser. You should be able to be deported for disorderly conduct. For drunk driving, we've had courts throw out attempts to deport a criminal or an illegal alien who's been arrested for drunk driving. He said it's not serious. That is, yes, it is. So we got to get rid of this notion of, of trying to parse things here and, you know, pick nits. Well, that's not, no, you will obey all of our laws, civil and criminal. I don't think that's asking that much. It would happen to you or I if we were in somebody else's country. If you went to Mexico, they wouldn't look at you. If you were arrested for drunk driving, well, it's not really serious. Oh, they would look at it differently. One of the other reasons we have to lock down the border to prevent and control the spread of infectious diseases. Remember the flu epidemic a couple years ago? Do you remember some of the other 
epidemics that hit the United States, where there was a fear about it just a couple of years ago. Ebola, remember that? That's why. That's another reason why you have to control your borders to spread and prevent infectious diseases from becoming an epidemic in your country. So it's a national security issue. There's health issues. And like I said, if you're going to be a sovereign nation, you have to have borders. And you have to be willing to enforce those borders. Now, coming up on the other side of this break, because there's many facets to immigration reform, and I want to hear from you, 888-727-BECK, 888-727-2325. And one of the other important issues surrounding immigration is what do we do with these sanctuary cities? These cities that are providing safe haven for not just people in the country illegally, but for criminal aliens as well. There are laws on the books that don't allow the local level to do this. But again, we have not demonstrated that we have the will to enforce our immigration laws. That's why we're up to now... You know, 17 million people in the country illegally. And it will get worse as time goes by. So coming up on the other side, we're going to continue this conversation. I'm Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark. And for Glenn Beck, this is the Glenn Beck Radio Program. program i'm your host for today milwaukee county sheriff david clark and i'll give you advance notice or maybe warnings in some case uh, but with you tomorrow as well this is the glenn beck program before we get back into this immigration issue and again the number is 888-727-BECK that's 888-727-2325 let's go to the phones uh chris from florida you've been waiting for uh, some time chris welcome to the glenn beck radio program thank you sheriff good morning to you Good morning to you, sir. I'd like to um, first just say, as you know, I, I, have, I am a deputy down here in South Florida, and I'm, I'm part of all law officers, men, women, white, black, Hispanic. Just thank you for how strong you've gone to bat for us to, you know, tell the public to at least have the facts come out before we're hung, judged, fired, you know, and every, you know, have all the facts come out in all the cases. Because if you've seen and said before on TV, a lot of us have come back innocent on cases. And their lives and careers are ruined even because they did what they had to do. And, you know, and I still back, like you say, if an officer does cross the line and do wrong, well, then he needs to, he or she does need to be, face the consequences. But we just can't be judged right away. And I want to just thank you very much for everything you've done on that. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for the call. You know, uh, that's a good segue into continuing this immigration issue. I want to thank uh, Chris and everybody who puts on that uniform and goes out to protect and serve their community, puts their life on the line, put their, puts themselves in harm's way. These people have families, 
their spouses, and uh, what they do for this country is incredible. It's been an honor, Chris, and it's been an honor to every law enforcement officer out there to be able to defend your character, your courage, your commitment, your sacrifice as you go about protecting and serving your community. Now, here's why this is a segue with local law enforcement. One of the things that I have thrown out there in terms of immigration reform is we need a mechanism with which to deputize all local law enforcement officers to have immigration enforcement authority. Currently, they do not. Um, This is going to be a big issue because the local law enforcement officer comes across these individuals on a daily basis. Let's be frank, ladies and gentlemen. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, they don't have the bodies. They're not in these neighborhoods. They're not doing traffic stops. They're not investigating crimes where they're coming across these individuals. And the local law enforcement officer does not have the authority currently to detain these people for potential Uh, for potentially being in the country illegally. They can notify ICE. We can notify them, but we can't hold them unless ICE puts a detainer on. So here's how this works. If I go out and make a traffic stop, I'm investigating a traffic violation. I am not investigating whether this person's in the country illegally or not. And all of a sudden you come across an individual with no driver's license. You come across an individual who has no identification, and he or she can't even speak the English language, at least not fluently. It doesn't mean necessarily they're in the country illegally, but that is called a red flag. So what we would do in that instance, what I would do, let me talk about what I would do. Don't forget, I've been doing this, I'm in my 39th year. I never tell people I've seen it all, because every time I start to Believe that I have, I see something that I haven't seen before. But I will say this about my 39 years in serving my community and wearing my community's uniform. I've seen a lot. So what we would do in that situation is you'd call a bilingual officer, someone who speaks Spanish, and come over and interpret. And you start asking a few questions. Where do you work? Where do you live? You try to find known associates, so on. And you're just asking some probing questions. You aren't doing any immigration enforcement, but you're allowed to ask those questions to the law enforcement officer because don't forget, you're going to write a citation and the person has no identification. How do you know who this person is? So what we would do is make some determination. You may haul them in on a summary arrest because they don't have ID. So you take them in for fingerprints so you can identify them. So you can write the citation. We are not enforcing immigration. Up to this point. Now, what we can do is notify Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and we can say, we got an individual here who we suspect may be in the country illegally. We we still don't have the authority to detain him. Now, ICE gets to make that determination. They'll ask a few questions. They'll do some initial digging, and they'll say, we're going to put a detainer on that individual. Now the local jail has the authority to detain this person under that lawful detainer. Now, they don't have to. Because the feds can't force the locals, the local law enforcement, local communities to enforce immigration. But I do in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I've been a part of a couple of those initiatives. Secure communities, 
where we cooperate with ICE. We don't enforce immigration. We don't have the authority. But I'll, I'll, I'll detain. They're not doing it in California. That's why Kate Steinle's dead. You remember that case, the one that catapulted the immigration issue for Donald Trump? That guy had been deported five or six times back in the country, in and out of jail. The sheriff of, of, of the Sac- San Francisco area wouldn't honor the detainers. So these guys go back on the street to commit crimes, to commit more crimes. So under secure communities, I would hold, I still hold them today. If, if ICE puts on a detainer, I hold that. And yeah, I, I, I get blasted politically in Milwaukee County. I don't care about that. I care about law-abiding citizens. I care about doing my job, which is what? To enforce the law. So I cooperate with ICE. But I think it would go a long way if we would give deputize, and ICE would have to do that, the federal government, deputize local law enforcement so we can start asking these questions, looking at whether this person's in the country illegally or not. Currently, we can't do that. I think it would go a long way. So, you know, there's many facets, but the sanctuary city deal is totally out of hand. San Francisco's one. There's many cities, all run by Democrats, liberal Democrats. What I mean by that, they're mayors, they're city councils, who make it clear, we're going to provide a safe harbor, a safe haven for people in the country illegally. But guess what? There's a federal law that says you can't do that. And I've talked about it. It's under 8 U.S.C., 1324, which in part contains criminal sanctions for any person who knowing or in reckless disregard of the fact that an alien has come to or entered or remains in the United States in violation of law, attempts to conceal, harbor, or shields from detection such alien in any place, including any building or in subsection 4, encourages or induces an alien to come, enter, or reside in the United States. That's what sanctuary cities are doing. They're saying, come here, we'll provide you safe haven. Safe haven. Knowing or in reckless disregard of the fact that such coming to or entry or residence is or will be in violation of the law, engages in any conspiracy to commit any of the preceding acts, shall be fined and imprisoned for up to five or ten years. Five to ten years. These sanctuary cities, these mayors, these city councils who are proclaiming we're a sanctuary city, they're in violation of 8 U.S.C. 1324. But folks, remember. Remember what I said. We don't have the will. We don't have the will to... This law is already on the books. Congress doesn't even have to act on this. But where's the will? What about the rule of law? I'll tell you right now, this happens on college campuses or some university recently where the president said, we're not going to enforce immigration in terms of, uh, of uh, illegal aliens coming onto our campuses and enrolling in our schools. They're in violation of 8 U.S.C. 1324. I'll tell you right now, the first university president, the first mayor, the first city council president, that is prosecuted under 8 U.S.C. 1324, 
I'm telling you right now, within a year, these sanctuary cities would shut down. It would serve as a deterrent. But they thumb their nose because they know there's no will on the part of the federal government, the United States Department of Justice, the Attorney General of the United States. They know there's no will to enforce this. See, this to me is the biggest aspect of any kind of immigration reform. You can come up, as I said, with all of the reform you want if you don't have the will to enforce it. Enforce the border, deport criminal illegal aliens and other persons that we learn are in the country illegally. I'm not talking about roundups. You can't round up 17 million people, but you can put things in place to discourage this. We have to have zero tolerance, zero tolerance at the federal level to enter into the United States illegally and set up residence. Zero tolerance. And when we do this, people will stop coming over. They'll stop crossing the borders. You don't have to round up and deport 17 million people. And when you force employers, here's another aspect. When you force employers under E-Verify, right now E-Verify is voluntary. So the federal government sets up this program where employers can run these names through to see if the person is in the country legally before they employ them. But it's a voluntary system. You have to have it mandatory. How do you mandatory? Well, when you find some business that in large numbers, I'm not talking about one person that slipped through the net, in large numbers are employing illegal aliens knowingly and they haven't checked what you verify, you hammer them. There are sanctions for that. Once again, we come back to this We have plenty of laws on the books to fix this immigration issue, but we don't have the will. So another thing that I would recommend is to make the E-Verify system mandatory. And like I said, well, how do you mandatory that an employer is going to do it? Well, when you find out that they've employed somebody who's in the country legally, massive fines. Massive fines. You don't have to arrest anybody. Massive fines for that company or corporation. This stuff would stop Yesterday, when the federal government sends the signal that we're not doing this anymore, we're not going to allow you to do it anymore, because we are a sovereign nation. Like I said, this is a national security issue. This is a domestic security issue. This is a public health issue. We're going to continue this on the other side of the break. I'm Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark in for Glenn Beck. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Glenn Beck. Mercury. Thanks for staying with us today. 
Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark. We're talking immigration, something that the Congress, the new Congress, is going to have to take up and uh, many facets that are involved and what it might look like. Let's go right to the phones. Mike from Missouri, you're on the Glenn Beck program. Mike, are you there? Yeah, good morning, sir. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, mention that you kind of touched on it a little bit because you keep talking about, you know, the will to enforce the law. And and I think the main thing it comes down to is accountability. And uh, it's something that's not mentioned enough because there is no accountability. But I think Trump's already demonstrated that he believes in a a top-down leadership, uh, you know, with an open door. And, And I don't think he can go straight to the cities themselves. But, you know, there's nothing to say that he can't lean on the governor, which leans on the county seat, which... Uh, you know, maybe pulls in the senator from that district and uh, goes to these cities and be like, you know, this is what the deal is, and, you know, we're going to bring in, I don't know, the um, the rule of law that you were uh, discussing, I don't know if it would be like a U.S. Marshal that would enforce it or if the FBI would come in and enforce it, but like you said, as soon as we get, you know, one person uh, arrested and prosecuted for uh, harboring an illegal, I think things will change, but there's no will because there's no accountability. No one comes to these local sheriffs and, or these local city mayors and says, hey, uh, this is what you have to do or you're going to have consequences. And no one holds anyone accountable anymore. And I think that's uh, the, where the lack of will came from. Without a doubt. Mike, thanks for the call. Without a doubt, there's no will to enforce the law. But here's how you deal with sanctuary, uh, sanctuary cities. Defund them. There is a mechanism. We might get into that coming up uh, after the next break. We're going to continue this. 888-727-BECK. Defunding sanctuary cities. There's a mechanism in place. Again, like I said, and Mike touched on it, we have what we need. There's no will to enforce it. I mean, like I said, there's national security issues, domestic security issues. You have public health implications uh, involved in this sort of thing. They have to get their arms around this now. Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark in for Glenn Beck. This is the Glenn Beck Radio Program. Stay with us. Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark in for Glenn Beck. This is the Glenn Beck program. We're talking immigration. Let's go right to the phones. Gabe from Texas. Welcome to the Glenn Beck program. Gabe, are you there? 
Going once. Going twice. I guess we lost Gabe. So I'm going to close out immigration here. We're talking about sanctuary cities and how the local governments, many of them, probably most of them, I, I, I stay away from absolutes, I would say all, but uh, most of them are, are run by liberal Democrats who don't believe in our, our nation's immigration laws. They don't believe that we should have borders, don't believe those borders should be protected, the borders should be enforced, and it's wreaking havoc. But here's another issue of why, at the local level, sanctuary cities are a public safety menace. Here's how this works at the local level. You have people in the country illegally. They're in a city, any city. Name a city that's a sanctuary city. Pittsburgh, their mayor recently, uh, Peduto, I think his name is, uh, recently declared that they were going to uh, make Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, sanctuary city. But here's what happens. You have people in the country illegally. They're committing crimes. And that's not all illegal aliens committing crimes, but the ones that do. Here's what they know. They know that if they victimize somebody in the country illegally, that victim is not likely to call the police for fear of being discovered to be in the country illegally themselves. So in other words, I do a street robbery, and I know you're in the country illegally. I know you're not going to call the police. The victim just goes home and says, I can't call the police because it'll be discovered I'm in the country illegally and, and, and I don't want to be discovered and, and identified and I don't want to be kicked out. So we have unreporting and underreporting of serious crime in these cities because of the illegal immigration issue. So the police don't know that the crime is going on and will continue to go on. I don't know if these mayors and these city councils and county boards, I don't know if they think about this or not. Do they care about their law-abiding citizens in that city and county? Is there such a disregard for the rule of law? It's probably why the Democrats continue to lose seats in state legislatures, lose governor's uh, races, members of Congress, because they don't care about law-abiding citizens anymore, the Democrats. They work harder to protect and create an environment, a safe environment for illegal aliens than they do law-abiding citizens. This actually goes on. This criminalization, the victimization, and I'm talking about some serious crimes, ladies and gentlemen. I'm talking about things like I mentioned robberies. I'm talking about sexual assaults. I'm talking about domestic violence. I'm talking about child abuse. Where if you're in the country illegally and you know somebody's abusing your child, you may not notify local law enforcement because you don't want to be discovered to be in the country illegally. This stuff has to be enforced. Let's go back to the phone. Scott from Ohio, welcome to the Glenn Beck program. Sheriff, how are you? Thank you very much for all that you do, your witness, and in this uh, American revolution that we're in right now and uh, the battle to reclaim law and order in America. Thank you, sir. It's an honor. It's an honor to serve. Go ahead. Yeah, the question is, I've traveled internationally, and in regards to your comments on uh, enforcing E-Verify, 
countries like Great Britain actually publicly announce fines that they give for companies that have been caught hiring large number of illegals. Could be a thousand pounds, could be twenty thousand pounds, but they publicly announce that for two reasons. One is to um, openly identify to the public uh, the problem that they've had, but two, also to keep the other companies in line. And they have very little problem with enforcing E-Verify through that public announcement and the fine itself. What are your comments on that? Well, first of all, thanks for the call, Scott. I appreciate it. Merry Christmas to you. Um, You know, with the E-Verify system, first of all, I think the biggest problem is that it's voluntary. And you get into this squishy area with, you know, do the feds want to force or can they force the local communities? I think private businesses, they can. Um, Can they make them enforce immigration laws, even private businesses, which is what this would be doing. But I'm not going to get all hung up on that stuff. I'm going to go back to the thing that I mentioned earlier where if you do heavy fines for these individuals, especially the ones who – don't use, use E-Verify before they hire some, uh, somebody. Now, here's the problem. Even if you do use E-Verify, most of these individuals that come in and are looking for work, you don't really even know who they are. You come in, they give you uh, somebody else's name. They give you the documentation of somebody who's in the country legally. And the employer doesn't know that, so he runs that name in. So let's say you have a person who is legally in the United States. And he or she has a birth certificate, a driver, probably birth certificate. And they go to an employer and say, yeah, here's who I am. And they run that through E-Verify. It's going to say, yeah, that person's in the country legally, but it's not even the person who passed the document. So I understand some of the complexities for employers, but I think the first step is making it not voluntary, making it mandatory to do that sort of thing. Let's try Gabe from Texas back again. Gabe, you're on the Glenn Beck program. Go ahead, sir. Oh, we still don't have Gabe. Okay, uh, that's what Congress is going to be dealing with, and they're going to want to hear from you. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, you know what people in Congress tell me all the time? If we don't hear from constituents, we don't think it's that big a deal. They might know it's a big deal, but if they don't think it's going to move the political needle for them, they're not going to fool with it. They have to hear from you. They have to hear from you. Let's try Gabe one more time. Gabe from Texas. Hello. You're on hello, the yes. Glenn Beck radio, pro- radio program. Go ahead. Yes, hello. Go ahead, hello. Gabe. Hey, yes, sir, yes, go ahead. Uh, I live five miles from the border of uh, the United States, uh, right here in Texas, in the, city, in the city of Mercedes, Texas. And it's a big frustration over here. I know we got uh, uh, immigration issues in all four corners of our country, but uh, if we're talking about southern border, it's a big uh, it's a big frustration for us down here. And um, the problem I have, uh, I am an American citizen. I did serve my country. And uh, the problem I, I have now is that uh, a lot of the influx of the people are coming over. Uh, they got to look. They got to find jobs. And most of them are taking uh, that I that I can see. They're taking uh, um, American jobs. And uh, they're all over the place, and we're talking large numbers at a time. And also another issue that I have around here is uh, most people are staying true to their Mexican flag, and you see it all over the place, you know, and uh, they're not pledging to the United States flag. Gabe, thanks Uh, for the call. Gabe, i got to let you go in the uh, interest of time here, but uh, a couple things that you touched on. 
And, uh, you know, you're right. And you're seeing it firsthand, the border enforcement. But you're also talking about, you know, people come into this country for a reason, because they want to experience American exceptionalism. They obviously believe in the Western culture, the opportunities that the United States afford. They want to participate in that. Well, you can't have one foot in the water and one foot out of the water. You either come here because you want to experience American exceptionalism, exceptionalism, or you don't. You left your country of origin for a reason. And I don't care what that reason, I don't care what your motivation is. You left that country for a reason. You couldn't find work. It's a war-torn country. No matter what it is, you left. Leave it behind. I'm Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark in for Glenn Beck. We have to take a break. Break. This is the Glenn Beck Program. You're listening. You're listening. To the Glenn Beck Program. The Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. Sign up for the newsletter and get all the info you need to know at glennbeck.com. Welcome back to the program. I'm Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark in for Glenn Beck. This is the Glenn Beck program. We're going to switch gears here, third hour. We're going to talk about this opioid epidemic sweeping across the United States. It's to the point now, this is such a crisis, that... Everybody either knows somebody, is related to somebody, has lost somebody due to this addiction, heroin, some of the prescription, the opioid-based prescription drugs. Something has got to be done about this. We are talking about a generation of people. And, you know, this thing transcends race. It transcends uh, class, gender, if we don't get our arms around it now, we'll be talking about an entire... We might be talking 10 years before we get rid of this. Now, we were able to eradicate this this, this epidemic of heroin back in the 60s. And I don't know how they did it back then. I was a young kid back then. But I'm hearing a lot of lip service today. I'm hearing people use it for political leverage, people running for office, people who are in office, office holders, politicians... Oh, yes, we need to do something about the heroin and opioid crisis in America. And if you elect me, I will make sure that we get treatment programs and blah, blah, blah. I've seen some grants given out for pilot projects, treatment programs. But this can't just be a treatment-based remedy, ladies and gentlemen. It cannot be because it's too late at that point. What are we doing early on to prevent people from slipping into this addiction? You want to stop people before they become addicted to this and not have the heavy emphasis, which is what we always do. We do the same thing with crime. 
We want to treat crime with all of this money put into somebody who's already a career criminal. It's in their DNA. It's too late. If you're a 25-year-old and you've led nothing but a life of crime, you have no education, you have nothing to offer an employer, you're functionally illiterate, it's too late. Now, I'm not suggesting we throw those people away. I'm saying I don't have the answer for that. I want to spend what little money we have for this type of thing, this intervention, because that's what we need here with the the opioid crisis. We need interventions. Forget about solutions, okay? Thomas Sowell reminds me that all the time. There aren't solutions to these things. There are remedies. Because when you remedy something, what ends up is you you create a issue or problem somewhere else. So interventions we need. Getting back to the opioid thing. This is an article I came across. This is a director of the Center for Disease Control. His name is Thomas Frieden. He's an MD. How to end America's opioid epidemic. One of the most heartbreaking problems I face as CDC director is our nation's opioid crisis. Lives, families, and communities continue to be devastated by this complex and evolving epidemic. Year after year since I've been at CDC, the drug overdose death, I'm sorry, the drug overdose death toll in our nation has been the highest on record. In 2015, more than 52,000 Americans lost their lives from an overdose. More than 33,000 of these deaths involved a prescription or illicit opioid. Listen to this, ladies and gentlemen. This crisis was caused in large part by decades of prescribing too many opioids for too many conditions where they provide minimal benefit and is now made worse by wide availability of cheap, potent, and easily available illegal opioids. Heroin, illicitly made fentanyl, and other new illicit synthetic opioids. These deadly drugs have found a ready market in people primed for addiction by misuse of prescription opioids. Overdose overdose deaths involving heroin have more than quadrupled since 2010. And was a slow stream of illicit fentanyl, a synthetic opioid, 50 to 100 times stronger than morphine, is now... A flood with the amount of the powerful drugs seized by law enforcement increasing dramatically. America is awash in opioids. Urgent action is critical. And listen to this. Back to the story here. Thomas Frieden, MD, Center for Disease Control Director. Our nation's current situation reminds me of a story often told to students in public health. Here's the story. A person on a riverbank saves one drowning person after another before stopping, exhausted to think, how can I stop people from falling into the river? That's what I was getting at when I talked about how we deal with criminal behavior. Instead of treating the criminal, why don't we stop people early on, meaning juveniles when you're talking about crime, but in this situation here, Yeah, the guy's on the riverbank saving drowning folks. But at some point you realize, I'm not doing anything here. Why don't I stop people from falling in the river instead of trying to save people as they're drowning? We don't have that mindset. All this money for treatment, and I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't have treatment programs. 
What about abstinence programs? Education programs to keep people from falling prey to this. But here's another thing. He says doctors cause this, not intentionally, with their overprescribing of these highly addictive prescription painkillers. And pharmaceutical companies are behind this too. Let's not kid ourselves. And who do pharmaceutical companies give campaign donations to? Politicians, members of Congress, members of state legislators. That's why there's no will to point at. We're not having an honest discussion here, folks, when it comes to the opioid crisis. Nobody wants to take a look at these pharmaceutical companies who are making millions and billions. And I'm not saying they should. They shouldn't, I should say. I'm not suggesting that. We got to take a look at the doctors who are over prescribing this. And look, in fairness to doctors, look, you come in, you have a surgical procedure, they say, here, you know, take a couple of these. And why are they giving out 30 day doses of this stuff? Give it out for 10 days and say, if you're still in pain, call me. We'll look at something else. But we're in the second round, we're going to give you something less addictive. But it's easier for the doctor who's Offices are flooded treating uh, patients to just say, here, here's 30 days. Then, then I don't have to be worried with this person coming back every 10 days. I get that. But it's not helping the situation. It's making it worse. So until we begin to have an honest discussion about the cost. Now, here's the doctor saying is, forget the cop and me, and we're never going to arrest our way out of this. But the doctor says, Doctors and, and have caused this unintentionally, but they've caused it. We need to start having an honest discussion about this opioid crisis. Or it's going to continue on. Do we want to remedy, remedy this or do we just want to talk good about it and use it for political leverage? This is amazing. Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark in for Glenn Beck. This is a Glenn Beck program. We have to take a break. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. Welcome back to the program. Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark in for Glenn Beck. This is the Glenn Beck program. Look, I don't want to give that opioid crisis uh, short stroke, so I'm going to have some final comments to say on this. Uh, this is from, again, Thomas Frieden, who's the he's a doctor, MD, um, director for the Center for Disease Control, and he says this in, in terms of straightening this thing out. He says, while we implement these emergency response strategies, it's also important that we look upstream to prevent opioid use disorder in the first place. This starts with improving how providers prescribe opioids for pain treatment. 
That's an excellent starting point, he says. There are safer drugs and treatment approaches that can control pain as well or better than opioids for the vast majority of patients. But see, this is where the pharmaceutical companies come in because they're pushing onto these doctors the opioid-based prescription medicines. The doctor goes on to say, we must reduce the number of Americans exposed to opioids for the first time, especially for conditions where the risk of opioids outweighs the benefit. In addition, state policies should facilitate better use of prescription drug monitoring program. You see, we spend all our money downstream on treating a person once they're addicted. He closes this out by saying we must not forget what's got us here in the first place. Doctors' prudent use of the prescription pad and renewed commitment to treat pain more safely and effectively based on what we know now about opioids, as well as healthy awareness of the risks and benefits among patients prescribed these drugs can change the path of the opioid epidemic. Again, Dr. Thomas Frieden, the director for the Center of Disease Controls. Control. Ladies and gentlemen, this guy, first of all, should be testifying on Capitol Hill. And again, part of the problem is that the politicians are just using this stuff for leverage. They know it'll sell back home that, hey, I just got a $2 million grant for a drug treatment program for uh, people addicted to opioids. They know this. I think it's a sin. They listen to this guy. We can set up monitoring. What doctors are overprescribing this? And like I said, they're not. They, I don't think there are many doctors out there. I'm not accusing them of saying, I want to get people hooked on this. They're well-intentioned, but I don't care about good intentions. I care about results. And the result is like this doctor said. This stuff is being overprescribed. There are safer remedies to deal with pain. But, of course, that's not what the pharmaceutical companies want. They want the latest and the greatest, and this stuff's more expensive. So you have to ask yourself, do we want to fix this thing or don't we? You know, this is something that's right up my alley in terms of giving you straight talk. You know, we get, well, compassion, compassion, nothing. Let's remedy this. Let's keep people from becoming hooked in the first place. And then we'll deal with those that are already hooked. But once this stuff enters into the political realm, you forget about it. Forget about anything meaningful coming out of Congress. You're going to see a heavy dose of federal dollars for treatment. You will not see mechanisms in place for monitoring of doctors and pharmaceutical companies. We're peddling this stuff. These people are unintentional. They're dope dealers. They're no different than a dope dealer. I know some of you will freak out. What do you mean, a doctor? Look, this doctor says so, not David Clark. Speaking of a crisis, the crime and violence in the city of Chicago should bring tears to the eyes of a brass monkey. This is unbelievable. To date in the city of Chicago, you talk about a crisis and you talk about remedies. 753 people have been murdered in the city of Chicago. Compare that to 492 last year. Where's the outrage? Periodically, you see a story here and there. Let me tell you what goes on weekly in Chicago. Here's what happened just last weekend. 
Five dead, 13 wounded, one night. Four dead, 15 others wounded in shootings the next night. So nine dead, 28 people hit by gunfire. Folks, this goes on weekly in the great city of Chicago. Where's the outrage? I'll tell you right now, if 753 people were killed in the Ebola crisis or epidemic or scare, let's scare, let's call it scare. Oh, hell, you'd have news conferences every day. All the local news would be covering it. All the major news network networks would be covering this. Oh, this is horrible. Now it's up to 750. Somebody do something. And by the way, over 3,000 people have been hit in non-fatal shootings in 2016 alone. Ladies and gentlemen, this stuff is staggering. I've been in law enforcement, as I indicated, for 39 years. I'm staggered by this. Chicago's only 80 miles from Milwaukee, where I live. It's 80 miles down the road. New York's hit a increase in homicide over last year, city of New York. Baltimore, for successive years, has hit over 300 Homicides. Milwaukee's closing in. I'm reaching the second highest level ever in the city's history. Last year was the second highest uh, number of homicides. This year we're closing in on that number. If you joined us earlier, we we talked about with, with Heather McDonald what this war of cops has done. Men and women of the Chicago Police Department under siege because of ineffective leadership by none other than Democrat liberal mayor Rahm Emanuel, who has no idea what to do here. He has no idea how to get his arms around this. I've offered some remedies. Notice again, I didn't say solutions. Some things that we did during the 90s that led to record decreases in violent crime across the country. Record numbers of decrease in Crime and violence across the country. But we stopped doing those things that worked. We got hooked into this left's myth of mass black incarceration. We stopped locking people up. We engage in these social engineering experiments. Second chance programs for habitual criminals. Habitual. Community corrections. A reluctance to use jails and prisons as a crime control tool. Jails and prisons are a very effective crime control tool. And here you have President Obama, a friend of the criminal, a cop hater, commuting sentences in record numbers. Hardly a mention in the national media. Every once in a while, a little blurb. Reducing the sentences of major drug dealers and people who are in possession of of weapons, they're prohibited while they're peddling those drugs. We didn't provide any pushback. Who long, long, you know, this stuff doesn't turn on a dime. There's a lag time. So even if we put those effective remedies back in place today, it might be five years before we see a downturn again. Do you know how many people are going to be victimized by violent crime in the next five years with these numbers? This is amazing. we got to take a break. This is Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark in for Glenn Beck. This is the Glenn Beck Program. 
This is the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. Sheriff David Clark in for Glenn Beck. This is a Glenn Beck program. Looks like we're coming in for a smooth landing. A little turbulence along the way, but don't worry about that. You know, this is not my craft. I'm a cop by career. I'm a cop by trade. A pretty damn good one at that, I might add. Uh, But this uh, this radio stuff and TV stuff is 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 not my craft. Uh, But I enjoy it. I do it from time to time. And uh, I really enjoy it. I hope you enjoy it as well. If you did, I'll be back with you tomorrow. And if you didn't, come back tomorrow anyway and give you something to complain about, I guess. I want to thank the, the crew here, the staff. Uh, they've been great. You know, they they realize that uh, I'm a rookie when it comes to this. But they're very helpful. You know, they don't throw you into deep water. <laughs> you know, shark infested at that and say good luck. Uh, very helpful. And I want to thank you for that. I also want to say Merry Christmas to everybody. Boys, it feel good to say Merry Christmas and not feel bashful about it. You know, this political correctness that we've been under, this country's been under, this siege for the last eight years has been horrendous. You had to go around and, you know, say Happy Holidays so you don't offend anybody. This move towards secularism, you know, Christmas, the birth of Christ. And you had to be, like I said, skittish about saying it. You didn't want to offend anybody. Not that any of you were, and I know I wasn't, but, man, does it feel good. And I've heard more and more people just in, since November 8th just really just exuberant about saying Merry Christmas. It feels good. And Happy Hanukkah, if you're so inclined as well. As I said, we're a Judeo-Christian nation. The founding of it was, anyway. Not to the exclusion of any other religion. I'm going to close by talking about this, this Mrs. Bill Clinton, and, and she's hurting after the election, after her loss to Trump. And she's on this pity party, this uh, tour, this pity tour, where she's going around the country talking to donors and supporters and blaming everybody except her lousy campaign for why she lost the presidential, uh, presidential election. Donald Trump outworked her. Donald Trump was tireless. They're about the same age. That guy's like the ever-ready energizer buddy, a bunny. The guy just doesn't stop. I watched him, folks. I I was intricately involved in, in helping him get elected. I got behind-the-scenes looks and, and, and up close and personal. And I would look at this guy, Donald Trump. I say that affectionately, the president-elect. And I said, this guy doesn't stop. And I could tell early on he was going to outwork her. So she's going around. She's blaming everybody. Remember, first she blames Jim Comey. She doesn't blame her corruption. She doesn't blame blame erasing 33,000 emails. She doesn't blame the Secret Server. She doesn't blame the Clinton Foundation. She blames Jim Comey. Then after that, she blamed fake news. Fake news is why she lost the election. No, she ran a... Horrible campaign. 
Then she said the other day she lost because the media didn't help her enough. Uh, It took me a long time to stop laughing. Folks, the media was her campaign. The liberal mainstream media. They were her campaign. What do you mean they didn't help her enough to win? They couldn't do any more. They couldn't do any more to help her. They gave her questions to the uh, debates. They gave her stories and said, does this story meet with your recommendation before we go to print? Now she says the media didn't help her enough. Then it was the Russian hacking. Ah, the Russians did it. The Russians didn't cause her to lose the election. Even if they did hack, and it hasn't been proven, I don't know what to believe, like I said, but even if they did hack into DNC emails, this is why she lost. Nothing in those emails that was uh, put forth by Assange, they didn't dispute any of it. They never said that stuff's not true. They were just blaming hacking. Well, guess who they're blaming now? I saw something up on the screen here, the, the monitor, up on the set here. Clinton saying the inner city didn't come out for her. They didn't help enough. Now it's the voters, her voters. She got 90% of the black vote. What the heck is she talking about? You know what my advice to her would be if she were my friend? If she has any real friends, you know what they should do? They should go to her and say, you know what you lost? Here, let me walk you over here and put her in front of a mirror. She's why she lost. But, of course, with her, it's always somebody else's fault. Accepts no responsibility. Slept slept during most of the campaign. Every time you turn around, she was reported to be taking a nap. Well, she's going to have plenty of time to nap now, isn't she? This is amazing. So we'll keep an eye on this electoral college. Uh, it's supposed to be meeting at noon Eastern time across the country and and uh, closing this thing out, the left is scheduled protests. There are scheduled protests across the nation uh, prior to this election or this the Electoral College. They're still trying to put pressure on the electors. That is a federal crime, which is not being investigated. Look, Donald Trump is going to get the required number of electors to finally seal this thing. We're still not going to be able to uh, to move forward because... With the left, it's never over. It's never final. They're going to do everything they can to slow him down, to delegitimize his presidency. He's going to need our help. Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark in for Glenn Beck. This is the Glenn Beck Radio Program. It's been my pleasure. God bless you. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury.